Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. As I was looking at our text this week, it dawned on me that really it was part of a, uh, a larger section. Susie, would you do me a favor and close those doors on your, as you leave? Thank you. It was part of a larger section, and Mark is, is, is very prone to, uh, for we, we looked at before, repetitions and progressions. And I noticed a repetition that there, our text today is, um, it, it talks about his passion, uh, him, him dying on the cross. And there are, there are three texts that talk that, that, that where Jesus taught about his passion. The first one is in Mark, was in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. If you look back there. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and rise again three days. The second one of the three is in our text this morning, is Mark chapter 9, verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. The third one is in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. By the way, the third is the most detailed. Under the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So we have these three, uh, I guess you could say, passion sections, or, or this section is devised the three passion predictions. And they kind of form the, the, the outline, if you will, or the structure of 827 through 1050. But they also fill in the contents. In other words, everything's designed around these three passion predictions. So think of that in terms of, you know, Roman numeral one and Roman numeral two. These are kind of the the structure. And then within that structure, we have repetition of content. And in other words, what is interesting is that after each passion prediction, Mark records a couple of things in the same order. Number one, he records the misunderstanding of the disciples regarding what he just said. And he gives them a teaching or instructs them about the nature of his death and genuine discipleship. And, and so Mark, three different occasions, 831 and following, 931 and following, 1033 and following, gives this content where he, we see that they misunderstand what he says. And then he teaches them about the nature of his death. But more importantly, he teaches them about the nature of discipleship. All predicated or all stemming from these passion predictions. And as we come to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, um, really, remember, Jesus is now moving rather, rather quickly. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving south out of Galilee and he's beginning to move into Judea and he stops in Capernaum. And, and for the most part, his public ministry has ended. Partly because his, his public popularity has waned tremendously. We don't have recorded, what, for instance, what John records to us in John chapter 6 and these crowds were, were becoming massive. And at one point, Jesus turns to them and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And in John chapter 6, the people go, see ya. And they all leave. Literally, the crowd is dispersed. 
Um, Jesus was, was not much into the church growth movement. Um, and remember John chapter 6, his disciples, he turned to his disciples, his 12 disciples, and says, you're going to leave too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. So his popularity has waned, and now he's deliberately moving south towards Jerusalem. And as he's going, he on three different occasions, he's going to give uh, to his disciples his, his passion uh, predictions regarding and instructions regarding his passion. And look with me at verse 30. They departed thence and passed through Galilee. They're, they're moving through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he was teaching his disciples. Uh, again, for the most part, now we're going to see a couple of public interactions, but for the most part now, he has dedicated his time solely to train and to teach the disciples. This is, this is a crucial time for him and his disciples. Because he needs to prepare them for his death. Jesus moves and knows that there are some significant issues in their lives. And and this will be displayed. And as I said last week, it's amazing how the Bible is so honest and open about the failings of of their heroes. And he knows that there are some significant issues in their lives that they're going to need to deal with. And the verses that follow that Jesus addresses these issues. Again, he gives a passion prediction. There's a misunderstanding. And then he uses that as an opportunity to, to teach them and train them regarding true discipleship. Verse 31, he taught his disciples and said, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Just a side note, uh, this is all in present tense. It doesn't mean, obviously, that it's it's happening, or it it has happened, but he, he, he speaks as if this is a done deal. This is not might happen, I, I might go to Jerusalem, but he, it was such a certainty that he would go to the cross that he speaks in terms of something that is already, and is uh, in fact, happening right now. Verse 32, But they didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this was interesting. Why do you suppose they were afraid to ask him? <laughs> well, uh, we don't know. The right answer is we really don't know. Some of the options are... Um, He's, yeah, Peter tried that once and didn't turn out so good. Although, although in Jesus' favor, <laughs> Peter really didn't ask him a question. He rebuked him. But yeah, maybe they were a little skittish about that. Yeah, ignorance is bliss. It's interesting to me that, that um, maybe they felt like, yeah, I should know this already. And, and, and I don't want to ask a question and reveal that I really haven't got it yet. But, but they don't understand. The key here is they, they didn't understand what he was saying. Now, do you think they didn't understand the sentences and the words? No. They didn't understand the implications of this. Remember, to them, death was the end. To, for Jesus to die, and their thinking was, all their messianic hopes would come to an end. And, and, and this movement would be over. And so they were afraid to ask. They didn't understand, not the words, but they did not yet understand how this horrible thought of Jesus dying fit into God's plans. I mean, how in the world could this ever fit into God's plans? Now, if they were truly men of the Old Testament, they would have, should have understood. 
I mean, we read from Isaiah 53 today. They should have understood about the Messiah coming and being grief and smitten of men. And, but they didn't. They did not yet understand. And as they go, he, Jesus knows that there are issues in their life that they're going to have to deal with. And they're going to have to take care of. Verse 33, He came to Capernaum and being in the house. He asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? In other words, I noticed you guys were behind me. We're arguing about something. What was it? But they held their peace. For, by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> okay. Now, who do you think... Let, let's just speculate for a moment. Remember what's just happened. This thing called the Transfiguration. And they came down uh, off the mountain and they... Remember they had the crowd and the man with the demon-possessed boy of the mute spirit. And the disciples couldn't cast him out. So Jesus comes and casts him out. He, he teaches them about their lack of faith. And now they start going... They, they leave and they go to Capernaum and on their way, he gives them a passion prediction. They don't really understand how it fits in. Um, and while they're going, is there, they start arguing about who's the greatest. Now, having said all that, who do you think was leading the charge in this? Peter, James, and John probably. Why? They were there. They were there. They were the only ones that got to go up on the mountain. So I can imagine these guys going, uh, oh, I wonder who's going to be biggest in his kingdom. Uh, we got to go up on the mountain with him. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. You, you, you didn't. Uh, I asked my wife. We were talking about great men, you know, in history. I said, honey, how many great men do you really think there are in life? And uh, she turned to me and said, one less than you think, buddy. Um, they were arguing over who is greatest. What had Jesus just told them? I'm going to go and die on a cross, and they're arguing over who's going to be greatest. Matthew tells us that actually uh, their mother was involved. James and John's mother was involved. And mommy went and... I, I, get the, I, get the, I get the notion that, uh, that their mother was kind of a... Kind of probably wore the pants in the family, so to speak. She has the audacity to go to Jesus and says, I'd like for you to grant that, that my sons, one would sit on your right hand and one would sit on your left. And he's not talking about literal seats. These were, these were metaphors for importance. The most important seat uh, 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 was to the right. Whenever you sat to the right of someone, that was the, most, that was the place of honor. The next place of honor was to the, a person's left. So when we say that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father... Get out of your mind chairs and thrones and sitting there. That's not what it means. It means place of honor, the highest honor. So at the right side was the highest place of honor. The immediate left was the next highest. So she's saying, I'd like you to put one of my sons at the highest honor and the other son the next highest. By the way, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Who was to Jesus' immediate right? Do you remember? John. And who's to his immediate left? Remember? Anybody? I think it was Peter. I, I, I actually asked a question I didn't know. Uh, but the, the, I, yeah, no, really, who? <laughs> who? 
but, but those are places of honor. And so, I mean, but get the point. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus just said, I am going to Jerusalem, and uh, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands. They shall kill him, and he shall rise on the third day. And they're bickering and arguing over who's the most important. I came across this, uh, ironically, this brilliant, I I think she's brilliant author and cartoonist. In fact, her name is Ashley Brilliant. And she she writes these one statement, I don't know what to call them, really pithy statements. Um, And and I read one the other day, and she said, All I ask of life is a constant and exaggerated sense of my own importance. Uh, all I ask of life is a constant, exaggerated sense of, of me. You know the idiom, it's all about me. That, that's what the disciples were. You, you know the, the old saying, the two people that are uh, visiting at lunch together, and one person, all they're doing is just talking about themselves, talking about themselves, talking about themselves. And at a certain point, you know, the other person's obviously going, oh, I'm getting sick of hearing about you. And the person says, well, enough of me talking about me. Why don't I let you talk about me? <laughs> that, that, that's kind of that's kind of the that's kind of what was going on with these disciples. They were arguing who were, who was greatest. And, and if we were honest, we, we we would recognize that we too fall in that categories far too often, probably. I mean, how many times have we tried to subtly and, and I call it subtle self promotion? So so one of the attitudes they had to deal with uh, was self promotion, and, and and we do it. To various degrees. And sometimes very subtle, sometimes not so subtle. For instance, you know, someone talks about some kind of achievement that, they, that they've gotten. And what do, we, what do we have a tendency to do? Well, we share a greater achievement. Um, I, I heard a, com- a comedian once, he's, he's talking about this very issue of, you know, when people are trying to one-up each other all the time, who's the greatest? And he said he would like to be... Uh, uh, Neil Armstrong at a party. Because he, he could say, I walked on the moon. No one's going to beat that. Well, we try to one-up each other on achievements. Um, what about experiences? You know, someone's sharing an experience. We, we just feel this need. I've got to share a better experience. We could go down the line. Recognition, credit, awards. Education's a big one. Well, I've... You know, someone says, well, I got an associate, I got a master's, or I got a... We, we have this, it seems like this, that to always promote ourselves. Who is the greatest? Who's the smartest? Who's the funniest? I had a, a model for me, when I thought about this, this notion of self-promotion and sometimes subtle self-promotion, um, and then the opposite of that was a, was a Hebrew professor that I had that we became very good friends and and really, as I said, I did a lot of study, uh, independent study with him. It's Dr. Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard undoubtedly uh, is one of the finest. Uh, well, in, in, he's retired now, of course. One of the finest Hebrew minds in the country, really was. And, um, and, and in class, someone would make a comment or an observation. And he would make you feel like he has never seen that before. He'd say, man, what a... What a fabulous, well, that's a great observation. That's really a keen insight. I mean, he, he had this knack uh, uh, of making you feel like you were the smartest person in the world. And you, we all knew, obviously, he was the smartest person in the world. Okay, can I bring this up? I, I, Facebook? Yes. <laughs> it's interesting to me, 
how oftentimes we use Facebook to try to elevate ourselves and, and to try to, to make ourselves be greater and better than everyone else. And, and when I finally got off, uh, when I finally got off, I, I'm still on Facebook. It's only for my kids. Oh, by the way, if anybody does a friend request and I deny it, please don't get offended. Uh, <laughs> I, just want, I just want to keep track of my kids. I just want to troll my kids. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I didn't accept your friend request? Oh, okay. We'll talk. Uh, but I see this on Facebook, you know, this, uh, this, this incessant need to promote self. It's interesting. I look at Jesus' prescription. They were arguing. and Verse 35 he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. It's a willingness to let others go in front of us. We don't feel a need for one-upsmanship. We let others have the limelight and recognition. You see, it's this 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 value, this kingdom value that greatness in the kingdom of God is not shoving your way to the front, but it's in fact be, being willing to take your place in in the in, in the rear and in the, at the end. Um, turn, if you would, to, to Philippians chapter two. I think it's not a mistake or by accident that Paul uses the the, the supreme example of this that that he's trying to convey in Philippians chapter 2 because the church in Philippi was having problems with with this self-promotion and who's greatest and climbing to the top and getting to the front. And and he uses it to, to, to illustrate the opposite of that, the, the opposite kingdom value, he uses, in fact, the, 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 the passion of Christ. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. That's what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. You esteem others better than yourselves. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, we take the value of our culture, which is push your way to the top, um, get out there and be better and greater than everyone by, by promoting yourself in, in, in the kingdom, in, in, in God's kingdom, he flips that. He said, if, 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 if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you be a servant to all. And he uses the crucifixion as the supreme example. And, and in fact, back in Mark chapter 9, remember he's in the house. He's, he, this is probably his home. Remember, this was his home base. Capernaum was his home base. And this may have been either his house or, or Peter's house, if you remember. So he's in the house. Verse 36, and he took a child. Now Jesus is going to use an object lesson because they're not real abstract thinkers at this point. So now he's going, to, he's going to make it real concrete for them. He took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. 
And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So he takes a child. Now, we have to, we have to understand, uh, children to us right now, children, grandchildren. Yeah, I look at Mitch, and he loves his, oh, Jamie does too. He loves his grandchildren. Man, he, he, any chance he gets, he, he, he wants to be with his grandkids. Children, that wasn't how people viewed children in Jesus' day. <laughs> she, 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 there wasn't this, oh, children are so precious, and I want to hug them and cuddle them. That, 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 that was not their view of children. And children were the least significant. It was kind of the, you don't speak unless spoken to. Now, I'm not saying they, they weren't abusive. I'm not saying that. But culturally, the children just weren't that big of a deal to them. They were very utilitarian. And, and certainly had no status, no, uh, no, no importance as far as that goes. And so he uses the, the one symbol of the least important person in their culture. It was a small child. And he says what to them? If you receive this little one, you receive me. Now what is he saying? He's saying that as you... Uh, as you put yourself under the lowest person of our culture, then you truly ref- reflect who I am. Then you truly ref- reflect my mission. Not promote yourself, but in fact to relinquish yourself to the most lowly among us. And he uses a child to do it. And 38... Good old John. Now, we always talk about how Peter put his foot in his mouth. I want you to picture this moment. This, this, this incredible teaching moment. Jesus has this, this precious child and, and, and he just told him about, you know, confronting them about their, 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 their self-promotion and they're pushing the, themselves to, to try to be the best and the greatest among all these, the, the, the others. Look at verse 38. And John, and John answered him, uh, Master, we saw one casting out demons in your name, and he, he followeth us not, and we forbade him because he followed not us. See, see these guys aren't tracking. They're still not tracking. And, and this is going to outline really another attitude that Jesus is going to deal with. So John, what does John say? He said, hey, Jesus, there's this guy we saw for whenever... And uh, he, he wouldn't have a name. And he was casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of us, so we told him to stop. Now, let's look at that again. Verse 38. What was really their objection? Was their objection that he was casting out demons? Well, he was able to, and they weren't just earlier. No, yeah, that wasn't their objection. What was, what was, his, yeah, what was his objection? It didn't work for him. He, we, he, he's not one of us. How dare he? He's not an apostle. Their their mind wasn't on ministry at all. Their mind wasn't on uh, on people at all. We told him to stop because that's for us. That's our ministry. And as Blake brought up, and what just happened? They couldn't, and this guy's out there doing it. So maybe there was a little bit of jealousy. But we don't know that. What we do know is John says... He's not part of our group. So we told him to stop. <laughs> this is nothing new. This is nothing new. T- t- turn to Numbers chapter 11. 
Way back in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11. This is classic. This is in one of the myths of the people complaining against God and God's going to judge them and they, Moses prays for them and God relents and um, you know he provides manna and uh, verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man on the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore just has afflicted thy servant? Wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? He said, you know, What have I done that you've given me these people? <laughs> that you've afflicted me with these people? Have I conceived all this people? That, that, that I didn't bring this group together. You did. Have I begotten them? And thou shouldst say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth the nursing child into the land which thou swearest to the fathers. When should I have flesh to give unto these people? In other words, Moses is trying to lay all the blame on God. Look with me now down to verse 24. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud. A cloud was really the, the reoccurring symbol we see in the, in, in the Bible for the presence of God cloud um, and he spoke unto them and took the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the seventy elders and it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them they prophesied and they continued to prophesy they didn't cease but there remained two of the men in the camp the name of the one was Eldad and the other was Medad and the spirit rested upon them so they weren't part of the seventy And they were with them that were written, but they did not go out under the tabernacle. They prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man, told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord forbid them. Look at verse 29. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? You're jealous for me? Would, that, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon all of them? I wish that all of them would be able to do this. You know, Joshua, you know, Eldad and Medad, they're not, they didn't come to the tabernacle. They're prophesying in town. Stop them. Tell them to stop. They believe that only they were authorized to do this ministry. I mean, this guy was stealing their thunder. I mean, he was apparently being very successful. And and, and in essence, we do this oftentimes in the church. And when I say we, I mean pastors. Particularly those of us who have been formally trained, you see. Uh, You see, we've been trained in the seminary. And so, um, the last thing we want you to do is handle the Word of God on your own, because you might get hurt. It's kind of like a sharp knife. You leave that to the professionals. You're not one of us. And we do this in a lot of subtle ways. We use this all the time by, by appealing to the Greek and the Hebrew. Because, see, uh, who's going to dispute us, quite frankly? You know, 
Seth, are you going to real? I mean, are, if I say the Hebrew says this, you say, oh, I'm actually, uh, no. He might, yeah. Uh, yeah See, these guys, not just promoting themselves, but a sense, a sense of self-importance. And I look at the church and I say, you know, there, there might be other churches that are doing things differently than the way we do it. And, and, and other churches, by, by however you manage or by however you define success, may be much more successful than we are. And, and we ought not have a, this sectarian spirit of, of well, if, if they're not doing it the way we do it, they're wrong. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that anybody who just claims the name of Jesus is doing his ministry. Uh, we, we read in Acts chapter 19, remember the seven sons of Sceva? They were going around you know, trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and one demon-possessed man beat them severely about the head, neck, and shoulders, and they ran running out of the house. And they said, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? So any, I'm not just saying that anybody who claims to be doing ministry for Jesus is. We need to call out false teachers. We need to stand against false teaching and, and false ministry. But whether someone from a different denomination or from it, we ought not have this notion that we're the only ones doing it right. And that's basically the, the, these, these disciples. They, they had this notion that that we are the we are the chosen ones. We are the precious ones. We are the we are the ones who are trained. We are the ones that have been given this ministry. And Jesus, back in Mark chapter nine, Jesus said, "No, don't forbid him." For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can likely speak evil of me. For he that is not against me is on our part. And he goes on to say, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Uh, and in other words, Jesus is saying that um, this independent um, exorcist, <laughs> was not to be hindered because it failed. He was basically telling them, to do so, you are failing to understand the scope of my mission and the scope of my work. In other words, this sense of rivalry and jealousy has no place in my, in my kingdom. And they were failing, in fact, to, to, to recognize allies. This guy was an ally. Forty-two. Who shall ever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me? It is better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and cast into the sea. And if by hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter in life maimed and having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And if by foot offends thee, cut it off. It is better for you to enter lame into life than having two feet to be cast into hell. And if an eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Okay, now, I, I can't help but notice um, the over-the-top language that Jesus is using here, quite frankly. It's over-the-top, is it not? I mean, he's talking about 
people being drowned, body parts being cut off. Um, he's talking about you know people being thrown into hell. What's going on here? I mean, we obviously do not take this literally, do we? If we did, none of us would have eyes, none of us would have feet, none of us would have feet or, or, or hands. What's going on? Now, you see, Jesus was trying to make a point. This is what we call hyperbole. This was a figure speech that, that you used the, the most extreme example to make a point. And he's dealing with their attitude, their, their attitude of self-promotion, their attitude of self-prominence. And he's saying that this is the kind of thing that if you don't deal with radically, you can't mess around with this stuff. You can't say, well, I'll be a little... I'll be a little bit self-promoting. I'll be a little bit self-prominent. He's saying you can't mess around. And he calls it for what it is. This is sin. And, and when he says, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your feet, put a millstone around your neck, drown yourself in the sea, he's saying you better start taking sin seriously. Man, I read this, I think, when was the last time I took sin seriously? Uh... Let me, let me back up. I take other people's sins seriously. I'm real good at taking other people's sins seriously. Not quite so, uh, not quite so seriously when it's mine. See, he, he says you can't afford to fool around with sin. We tend to minimize it, especially ours. He says you need to deal decisively and radically over your sin. And, he, and in so doing, Jesus, I think, is starting to put his finger on these three problems. The self-absorption, the self-prominence, this, this, this not taking sin seriously. And, and, he, and he addresses now, the very, I think, the very underlying problem in all of this. In 49, he says, For everyone shall be salted with fire. It sounds, seems so out of place. Where, what is, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltness... Wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And again, these are very confusing, very difficult verses to understand. Let me give you my best shot. I know that you will probably disagree with me, so if you do, that's fine. I'm not, I, I'm not willing to debate this. Because I don't know. I'm not that certain. Let, let me tell you what seems to make most sense in the context. When he says... Everyone shall be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. The options are, uh, fire obviously is a, is a symbol of judgment and hell. So one option is he's saying everyone, or un, for unbelievers, hell is a punishment for rejecting Christ. In other words, everyone who rejects Christ will experience the punishment of hell. And, and in fact, that fits the context of what he was just saying. That's one option. Another option is Christians suffering because of their attachment to Christ. And we get this from the salt. For everyone shall be salted with fire. In other words, he's saying, everyone who follows me, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, he says, you need to understand what you've become a part of. What you become a part of means you will be salted with fire. You will experience persecution and suffering. So the second option is he's referring to Christians who are suffering because of their attachment to Christ. 
And the third option is the one I adopt because uh, it, it kind of addresses both. I mean, this statement is so ambiguous uh, who he's referring to, what he's talking about. He talks about salt and fire. Everyone shall be salted with fire. In other words, I think I, I would just conflate the two. He's saying for those, and, but it's all based on your relationship to Christ. For those who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, they will be salted with fire and judgment. But for those who do follow Christ, that they will suffer and experience suffering and persecution. Everyone is going to face some kind of trial. And it seems as though he shifts. He picks up on salt and uses salt in a different way by saying, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltness, wherewith will you season it? What can you do to saltless salt? It's lost its purpose. He's saying, guys, if you don't grasp these very basic concepts and ideas, you are like, you are like saltless salt. And then he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It goes right back to the beginning, arguing over who's great. If I were to title this sermon, it would be The Cross-Shaped Life. You see, while they didn't fully understand the role and the concept of crucifixion and death and the life of the Messiah, even less did they understand what it meant, what it meant and what it means to follow a Messiah who goes to the cross. The fundamental issue here, I think, is a failure to understand that we follow a Savior who went to a cross and who invites us, in fact, demands that we follow him to that very same cross. And we too, like the disciples, really, as I, as I look at my Christian life and, and sanctification, we too probably have not yet worked out all the implications of following Jesus and all that that means. And all that that requires. You see, when our lives truly become cross-shaped, when we truly grasp the implications, not that, not that we follow a Savior who died on a cross, but the implications of all of us who follow that Savior, we need to understand and grasp the implications of that in our lives. We can't live our lives with brash self-promotion. We can't live our lives constantly promoting ourselves and, and having self-importance and, 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 and just living however we want to live and, and, and not taking sin seriously. But to the extent that you and I, that we grasp what it means to follow Jesus in this way, the Messiah who went to the cross, then we will live lives of humble service, of humility, of deference to others. And then we will truly be transformed by the gospel. This is what the disciples needed to understand. And quite frankly, this is what we need to understand. And this is part of our 
training. As Jesus is saying to us, I am a Savior who goes to the cross. I went to the cross. I died on the cross. And I invite you to follow me to that same cross, which means I died to self. I died to self-promotion. I died to self-greatness. And I give myself to humble service, lowly service, humble as a slave. And then, and to that extent, will I truly begin to be transformed by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, as I, as I studied this passage, as I looked at this, and I was ashamed, quite frankly, of how far short I fall of it. And how prone I am to these very things. Lord, I I think I speak for all of us. Lord, we want our lives to be a reflection of Jesus' life. As, As we live together in biblical community... As we live our lives, we, we, we must stand for truth to be sure. We must uh, speak out for Jesus. We must um, stand boldly and, and openly proclaim Him. And yet we must understand that that life bring, will bring great loss up at times and, and sacrifice. And, and we are not to try to push our way to the front of the line. But we humbly accept and understand that our role is to be humble servants serving one another. Father, we do want to be like our Lord, but we, like the disciples, don't fully yet understand what that means. It means a sacrifice of pride, of self-centeredness, of doing things my way, and we humbly and graciously submit to you. Oh God, transform us, not from our greatness, but transform us by us following our Lord to the cross. We thank you for him. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. And we look forward to that day, indeed, when he will return to bring us home to live with him forever. We thank you for your love, your grace. You you initiated all of this. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us?